following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Welcome back to the Larger for Life podcast. It's good to have y'all come back with us as we continue our study through this just wonderful and uh, we hope you've seen practical document, the Westminster Larger Catechism. I am one of your hosts, Stephen Spinnenweber, senior pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Jacksonville, Florida, joined by everybody but Derek Bright, who, as we speak, is on another podcast on behalf of Birmingham Theological Seminary. So he, you know, mid-episode just dipped on us to go to his employer. I don't know what we pay him for, guys, uh, with with treatment like that. But to make matters worse, Ben, he dipped on us to go on another podcast with Birmingham Theological Seminary, which is one of our sponsors, may may I add. This oh, this is going oh, to end may. up you may add. In I a may real add kerfluffle. I I can perceive. So I think he had good reason. I mean I, <laughs> listen to you. I want to bite the hand that feeds us, Nick. Okay. <laughs> so we've got Nick Bullock from uh New Braunfels, Texas. How you doing, Nick? Hey everybody, doing good. Thanks for joining us. We have Sean Morris, the whose name right now in the uh meeting is Butterball Turkey Hotline. Uh so <laughs> Sean, how are you? I, I am great. Have y'all ever called the Butterball Turkey Hotline? Those people are really nice. They're really helpful. You are a helpful person. And Matt Adams in Dillon County, South Carolina. First Pres Dillon. Matt, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us, listeners. So today we're going to be tackling questions 28 and 29 in the larger catechism. Uh, the first question, question 28, asks, what are the punishments of sin in this world? And question 29 asks, what are the punishments of sin in the world to come? So we're talking about the consequences of sin, which extend not just to life that we live now, but the lives that we are going to live because we are people with immortal souls, uh, souls that will live on um, longer than our bodies, uh, though our bodies are going to be resurrected. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. But what we're going to talk about is uh, punishments of sin in this life and punishment of sin in the life to come. And so I'll read question 28 and I'll kick it over to Matt Adams. What are the punishments of sin in this world? The punishments of sin in this world are either inward as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience and vile affections, or outward as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments together with death itself. So not a pretty picture, but Matt, walk us through this, this uh, punishments of sin in the world. Well, I think, Spin, uh, the first thing that our listeners should notice is that this is not going to be a very upbeat episode. Um, you know, when, when we started tackling, you know, what is sin, uh, how sin has been handed down, uh, to us, conveyed to us by our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, we began to feel the, the weightiness of sin. We began to feel the gravity of our sin. We, uh, hopefully realized how depraved that we actually are, um, apart from, uh, the saving mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and so now uh, the, the catechism begins to, to move into this idea of the consequences uh, of the fall. Not only uh, is a consequence of the fall, you know, that, that we are now born with a sinful nature, but there's actually repercussions for the sins that we commit. Uh, and, and what I actually really appreciate about the catechism, especially 28 right here, is that it helps us to understand that there's an inward repercussion or repercussions and also an outward 
Um, we we briefly kind of scratched at this at our last episode where we were talking about, you know, the the depraved soul and body. Um, there's something of that relationship, uh, maybe in, in a fuller sense, being discussed here uh, in this catechism question that there's inward, I lo- you know, horrors, consequences of sin, and then there's outward curses upon the creatures for their sins. And so, you know, just let's focus on inward for a minute. The first one there is a blindness of mind, a blindness of mind. You know, one of the things that uh, jumps out to me uh, when I think about the blindness of mind is, is in the gospels, in the earthly ministry of Jesus, as he heals the blind man. Uh, you, you remember uh, he, he compares it or he uses the healing of the blind man as an illustration that the, the Pharisees, the religious establishment of his day, was, was actually the ones that were truly blinded. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's Jesus uh, com- comparing or, or using earthly outward consequences, outward ailments, afflictions to, to, to show us or to illustrate to us a, a spiritual truth as well. And so he, he tells the Pharisees, you're, you're actually the blind ones here because you have a blindness of mind. You, you know the law. You know the prophets of the Old Testament. You're the most studied individuals uh, within the, the synagogues and in the temple. You should know who the Messiah is. But because of your sin, uh, inwardly, you are blind in your mind. You cannot conceive or know the things that I'm teaching. And you cannot know and affirm and believe in my true identity as the Son of God. And so, you know, that's exactly what this catechism question is is trying to uh, emphasize here, that because of our sin, the punishment of that sin is uh, a blindness of mind, a hardness of heart. Um, I said last episode that I was preaching through Zechariah on Sunday evenings at at First Pres Dillon, and one of the one of the kind of the strongest images in Zechariah chapter seven, as he's you know revealing the the sinfulness of the outward actions of religion, but a, a hard heart behind those outward actions of religion. Uh, in Zechariah 7, he says, you have, you know, turned your face from the Lord. You have turned your back on him and stopped up your ears so that you might not hear him. And your hearts have become diamond hard. It's a consequence. It's a punishment of sin, isn't it? You know, I, I let me stop there because let's let's kind of ponder on these inward punishments of sin before we move to outward. Does anybody else have anything they would like to share on that? Yeah, it's it's Romans 1, that God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Romans 1, 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do things which are not convenient. I'm using the King's English here. It's the proof text for the shorter catechism, or larger, excuse me. Uh, but also, you go back to Pharaoh, and I'm glad you brought out the blindness of the Pharisees being contrasted with the blind man who saw Matt. But you think of Pharaoh, how is it that that man could continue in such unbelief? He witnessed the 10 plagues and the 10 wonders of God, just like everybody else did. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He gave him a blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart. Uh, And that's a consequence of his own sin and it's the cursed result of sin being introduced into the world through Adam and Eve, that this happens at all is all flowing from the headwaters of Adam and Eve's uh, first transgression. And this horror of conscience, you know, I think when we read Psalm 73, we can all sympathize a little bit with the psalmist and say, yeah, we tend to get envious of the wicked because things seem to go so well for them in life, though they continually harden themselves in their sin and suppress the knowledge of God and unrighteousness. But there is, and I'm not saying it's uniform or that it's to the same degree in every person, but there are some horrors of conscience. We have to remember that there is 
an internal judgment of God upon the reprobate that we can't see. And we will see it one day when all things are uh, laid bare and we pass either into God's eternal rest or into eternal judgment. But remember this, Christian, that God is not keeping you from happiness when he calls you away from sin. He's calling you to something that will not terrorize your conscience. Sin terrorizes the conscience. Even as a believer, we feel, don't we, that those nagging and remaining sins that we still wrestle with, the Romans 7, that's what causes pain. It's not obedience. It's not like God is saying, I'm taking you away from something good and calling you to do something that's blasé or even worse. It's, it's, it's a chore to you. God blesses our obedience, and so he gives us the freedom of conscience. And we're going to talk about liberty of conscience later on in the larger catechism. But that's one of the, I think, undersold benefits of being a Christian. And one of the things that we underestimate is going on in the heart, mind, and in the consciences of those who don't know Jesus Christ. Yeah, dead men don't realize that they're dead, do they? <laughs> and that's what this, <clears throat> excuse me, that's part of what these these inward uh, these inward judgments, these inward miseries are getting at the, the hardness of heart, the blindness of mind. Dead men don't know that they're dead. Dead men can do nothing to undo their deadness. Uh, this is how pathetic, and I mean that in the classic sense of the word, the, a pathetic state that they're in. They're utterly helpless. There's nothing that can be done. What a sad and miserable and awful condition it, it is to be in. And you were touching on that expression, the horrors of conscience. I love that phrase. I don't love that reality, but the way that the catechism, the way the divines penned it here, the horrors of conscience. And I appreciate uh, Voss giving some illumination uh, to what that means, that, that there's this idea that there are people who are, they are afraid of God's judgments without being afraid of God himself. That is, they have an awareness enough to know that there are consequences and miseries that might befall them, and they are horrified at that prospect, but that doesn't drive them to have a, a fear, a holy fear, and a right fear uh, of God himself. Um, here's what he says here regarding the, 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 the horror of conscience. The Bible teaches that there is such a thing as hardened sinners becoming greatly afraid of the punishments of sin, even though they're quite complacent about the sinfulness of sin. The fact that they have offended against God does not trouble them, but they are terrified at God's judgments, which they know will overtake them. There are accounts of famous infidels being filled with terrors and fear of hell while on their deathbeds. I mean, I can think of two two quick examples of that right now. I, I know a lady. I've been in conversations with her for a long time. This lady is terrified of death. She's terrified of dying. She's terrified of getting cancer. It runs in her family, and so it seems genetically likely that she will contract it. She's terrified of chemotherapy treatments if she'd have to undergo them. She's terrified of the prospect of what will befall her body and the bodily miseries that will accompany it. She's terrified to one day die. But none of this has moved her to throw herself upon the mercy of Christ, to acknowledge that there is a God of holiness who will judge her sin and that she has only hope to be found in refuge in the mercy of Christ, that there is a hope for her, and it's only to be found in Christ, and she should seek, uh, cast herself upon uh, his, his mercy. That hasn't moved her to do that. And so there's, but yet there's this horror of conscience upon her blind mind still continues to resound against her. And then the other example I thought of is, I think a, a childhood Sunday school teacher told me about this years ago, but apparently Lenin, uh, the, the great Soviet leader, was screaming on his deathbed. And his aides could hear him outside in the hallways. He was laying there dying on his deathbed because he was contemplating eternity. And he was just screaming into the void as he's dying. In those, in those next moments, his voice fell silent uh, as he did uh, pass into eternity. Um, there, there's, there's a prime example of the, an infidel being filled with terror and the fears of hell while on his deathbed, yet it not moving him to repentance, it not moving him to see Christ, and yet just screaming into the void at the sheer horror of what awaited him. Uh, it's a ghastly thing to contemplate. Matt, you know, I was, um, and I think I've told the listeners before, but we, as a group of men uh, here at my church, we've been studying through the godly man's picture by Thomas Watson. And uh, just here recently, we were moving through the chapter 
where uh, the Puritan is exhorting uh, men to godliness, and and he actually uses this horror of conscience to call men to live unto holiness. Um, he says, uh, godliness is so excellent that that the worst men would like to have it when they are going hence. He says, though at present godliness, though at present godliness is despised and under a cloud, yet at death all would like to be godly. So men would like to live with the wicked in pleasure, but die with the godly. If then godliness is so desirable at death, why should we not pursue it now? Godliness is as needful now and would be more feasible. You know, it's one of those one of those things when we were talking through this little section, I had a a friend uh get brought up, a mutual friend that that I and one of my ruling elders have who who owns a graveyard. Um he owns a cemetery and and just a few weeks ago he was uh showing some plots to this couple. Uh and of course, uh they were interested in buying these plots. The man had just been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And, and so after, uh, he, you know, uh, sympathized with him, uh, and even prayed with him, uh, regarding his cancer diagnosis and his upcoming treatments, it's very bleak looking, he said, but he asked the man, he's like, so we have, you know, this section that has, you know, monument stones. We have this section that, that, you know, monument stones aren't allowed, just foot markers. And he goes, what are you kind of looking for? Uh, within a plot for for you uh, when you uh, pass on from this life. He goes, I want the plot in the cemetery that's the farthest away from hell. Uh, and he quickly realized uh, that mm-hmm. this man was, was not a believer, and yet he had the horror of conscience that knew that the judgment of God was hell um, uh, when he passed on from this life but it did not move him yet to repentance. Lord willing, uh, he has been, you know, moved to repentance. My, my friend, a dear believer, a good godly man began to share the gospel with him. And, and hopefully that took root, but it, but it does reveal something to you about this, this hardness of heart uh, that loves the, the world and its pleasures. Now, when they come to the threshold of death, uh, they have this horror of conscience that they know what is about to happen. They know what is to come. Um, and that's that inward turmoil, isn't it, that, that the catechism is trying to, to help us realize. And, and I think it would be fitting for us to, to even end you know, this conversation about the horror of conscience with Thomas Watson. Why would we, you know, why would we desire uh, godliness uh, and to be with God at the end of our life and not desire godliness now as as the Lord is merciful uh, in and withholding his judgment for this season season it would be easier more feasible to come to him while the free offer of the gospel is available to us uh, rather than have to cry from the pits of hell um, and we'll get to that in, in the next question but cry from the pits of hell for some relief and there be none um, you know, our Lord is merciful now. Nick, I see you want to say something, brother. You know, I, I think that all of this has been so helpful. I, I hope it's been helpful to everybody that's listening along uh, with us. But it ought to give us a moment of pause. Um, one of the texts that the divine cite specifically for the horror of conscience is Isaiah 33, 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And the thing that we've been returning to again and again and again is this idea of being afraid of the punishments of God, yet not having godly fear of God. In essence, the law of God being read to the second use that you see the holiness of God and you're afraid of him, but it doesn't turn your heart. And if that doesn't strike you as a Christian, and if you're a a listener who's a reformed Christian, it ought to. It ought to grip you. You ought to be 
you ought to be a little bit perplexed how the fear of God might not result in the conversion of a soul. All of this ought to say one particular thing to us, that without the mercy of God to sinners, there is no hope for salvation. It is His mercy, and His mercy alone through the grace of Jesus Christ that turns a heart. Now, that's right in the face of what so many of us have experienced in evangelical um, training for the evangelization of the lost. I think it has, at least in my own experience, come uh, right head to head with it. Uh, in fact, I can recall going to missionary training years ago um, in a mainline uh, Protestant denomination where the first thing that was said is, you need to establish fear. You need to establish fear. And so how you do that is you teach on sin. That's good advice. That's a good thing. But you need to establish fear. You're building a fear of hell. You're building a fear of burning. You're building a fear of condemnation. Um, and that's the first thing you have to have for somebody to then turn. And I will say that I, I think that there's almost no one uh, who doesn't have a sense of fear of God and a sense of fear of the punishment. Uh, who doesn't come into the kingdom. Um, however, fear is an insufficient motive for the redemption of God's people. The only thing that's going to be effective is His mercy. Uh, I even think back on uh, these things they used to do, at least um, in South Mississippi, it was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, and it was this, um, this play that would have been done in a house or in a church facility where these rooms were, um, you know, you go from the party and everybody's drinking and they're living godless lives and then they leave and there's a you know kids in a car and there's a wreck and somebody dies and and then they wake up and and where are they they're before the judgment of god and somebody's cast into hell and the devil's dragging them to hell and you've got a room and it's filled with smoke and uh screeching and it's it's horrible it's horrifying mm. and the whole goal was to literally scare the hell out of people yeah to scare them into heaven and what they're saying and what the Bible, I believe, uniformly is teaching is that the horror of conscience is a punishment in this life. It is a foretaste of hell for those to whom that is their destiny. And it's a horrific thing. It's a terrible burden. It's a pain to the soul of the lost prior to their eternal damnation. And that ought to cause us to simply be more amazed at grace, that it's the love of Christ and the mercy of the Father that enfolds us into his hand and calls us redeemed. Yeah, the judgment houses or the hell houses, yeah, that's 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 a phenomenon all over the, the North American evangelical landscape. Um yeah, and we th I'll kick it over to Matt here in a second, but yeah, we think of these these examples of folks with hardness of heart. We can think of folks in our own lives. I mean, they're all over the Scripture. Pharaoh, King Saul, Judas Iscariot. I mean, these men were confronted directly with the Word and the ministries of God Almighty, and Judas most especially face-to-face -face with the Son of God, God incarnate. And we see... We see we see the sad and, and, and awful and ghastly reality of, of what came of that. Uh, it is a sobering thing. Yeah, Matt. You know, I, I think Nick makes a, a really good point, and I want to move uh, on to these vile affections uh, so that we can end up moving on to the, the outward uh, punishments of, of sin. But, you know, one of the things that I think Nick was hitting on, and I want to make it completely clear, uh, is, you know, because, because there is a horror of conscience is the reason why we have revivalism uh, and, and the anxious bench of altar calls. You can scare anybody to an altar, uh, but, but revivalism doesn't produce uh, normally uh, uh, real disciples of Christ who, because of his mercy and grace, now strive to live for his glory. We see just these moments of emotionalism and and fear that that takes you to the altar and you, uh, you know, the altar, I'm using air quotes, but uh, takes you to the altar. You cry your eyes out. You beg for forgiveness because you don't want to go to hell, but it really doesn't produce in you any good and lasting fruit. And so there's, you know, yeah, I mean, that's just 
That was just solid, Nick. I appreciate that. But um, let's think about those these vile affections for, for just a second, and then I'll move us into these outward punishments of sin in this world. Um, here recently in, in one of our uh, adult Sunday school classes, they've been studying the life of David, and they, they got to this place where Absalom's going off the rails. He desires sexually his sister uh, and ends up raping her. Um, and it, and I, I, what, one of the men who, were, who was going to be teaching that lesson, he, he comes into my office. He goes, this is, you know, sickening. This is vile. You know, how am I supposed to teach this? And I said, it's supposed to shock you. It's supposed to come across as gross and it's supposed to offend you because that is sin. Uh, sin is offensive. Sin is vile and, and it even corrupts, depraves the affections of our heart. And, I, you know, I, I know that is a an extreme picture. Uh, Absalom, you know, uh, molesting his his uh, his stepsister. But but truly. Uh, you know, I think that Colossians three, where where uh, the apostle Paul is exhorting the church at Colossae uh, to put to death sin, uh, and he says, "Put to death, therefore, in verse five of chapter three, what is earthly in you: sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, which is idolatry." He's talking about this inward. Uh, this inward depravity of sin that that shows itself in vile affections that that shows itself in strong delusions, uh, and then what the apostle Paul will do to kind of bring this for, full circle is then he'll move on when he's talking about putting off or taking off the old self and putting on the new, more of an outward demonstration of uh, of of depravity versus godliness. He'll say now. You must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, which reveals itself outwardly. And so sin not only impacts the inward and has punishments and consequences inwardly, but it also has outwardly uh, punishments and consequences. Let me just remind our, our listeners of the language here. Uh, the curse of God that befall our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments together with death itself. So Ultimately, the the greatest uh, punishment outwardly of sin is death uh, that we know from Genesis three. But what about these, you know, these evils that befall us in our our bodies, names, estates, relations? What what's the catechism talking about there, guys? Well, there's all kinds of miseries in this life. Um, sin ruins everything. So we live in a fallen world. We live in a world full of sinners and they do all kinds of things. We do plenty of things to ourselves to invite our own misery, but others, others by their actions, uh, thrust miseries and misery uh, upon us as well. So all other evils that befall us in our bodies, we get sick, we have aches, we have injuries, uh, we have diseases that we contract, uh, names, estates, relations. People lie, people slander, they ruin our reputation, they spread falsehoods about us, and so our name and reputation suffers. People are thieves. We get we we are stolen from, and so our estates are affected. Uh, lies and discord are sown, and so our relations with others, with our neighbor, with our family members, are marred. Uh, seventh commandment: People commit adultery. That that marriage relation is marred, and it has ongoing ramifications uh, unto the misery of that immediate family uh, and to the wider community and to the church. Uh, Sin affects even our employments. It's hard to labor. Um, I, I suppose we forget that sometimes. We live in the modern 21st century West, and many of us work in comfortable air-conditioned offices, but uh, for the larger part of, of history, uh, people labored on farms and in agricultural communities and agricultural worlds by the sweat of their brow to produce food for the day so they might survive and have sustenance. It was not easy. We go to the supermarket and pick up food, uh, pay with our credit cards and go through the self-checkout line. We're in and out in 10 minutes, no problem. But uh, certainly in the context in which these divines were writing in the in the 17th century, uh, that, that kind of reality of an agricultural world full of labor and hard, sweaty, painful toil was on their mind. Uh, 
our our employments and those things suffer as well. We we many times we are cheated. We are not given the fair wage for our labors. We are robbed from. We have difficult relationships with our employers or our employees. It's not easy to make do in this world. There never seems to be enough. We're always lacking. Uh, we're always in need of something. Even when we're giving honest toil, all of these things are consequences of of sin. They are punishments of sin in this world that make life miserable, and of course, together with death itself, with the expiration of our body in that day uh, that God has appointed. Those are a few thoughts anyway, as, as going through that list of what the divines uh, catalog for us there in the latter half of question 28. Yeah, I was thinking of Proverbs chapter 5, of the consequences that sin brings about. Uh, you know, Proverbs 5, there is that uh, proverbial forbidden woman that uh, we're supposed to avoid. And the father warns his son and says, look, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. So there, I think we see that there are temporal and present consequences for sin. But as we sort of switch gears now into question 29, we see that there are everlasting consequences for sin. And when we read this, that the punishments of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever, I think we may be, from a creaturely vantage point, we might say that feels very severe. That feels overwhelmingly heavy. And why does hell need to be everlasting? There, I don't think we were, some of us might not have been alive when this was being debated, but not, annihilationism, mm. right? The doctrine of annihilationism teaches that upon death, we just cease to exist. We're annihilated, that hell isn't really real, because when the Bible talks about hell. It's hard for people to square that in their minds with how a good and merciful and holy God could allow a person to suffer the painful um, death that they'll experience in hell forever. So how would you guys help someone in your congregation who is struggling with the concept of hell and saying, I, I just, I really struggle with this as being an appropriate consequence for the sin that we've committed in life. We, we've talked in previous episodes about we have a low estimation of the holiness of God. Yeah. So we have talked about that. But why would we say that it's just or proper? And how will we in heaven maybe understand and feel about the reality of hell and those that don't go into heaven uh, with the redeemed? I'd certainly start by talking about that 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 notion that you just touched on spin and as gently as possible asking somebody well is god infinitely holy yeah is is sin no matter how minuscule is it just a little bit offensive to him or is it infinitely offensive to an infinitely holy god hopefully they would understand that it's infinitely offensive to an infinitely holy god and then well if it's infinitely offensive then what does it warrant well it warrants infinite punishment and so as unpleasant as hell is, and of course it is unpleasant, we're, 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 we're stuck back at square one of trying to get over that hurdle of if we're reckoning that, that punishment to be unfair or unjust, we don't have a proper reckoning of God's holiness. We don't have a proper reckoning of our sin and how flagrant and awful and truly vile, you know, to, to borrow that language from vile affections from a few minutes ago, truly how vile it is in the face of, of the thrice holy God and all of his wondrous white hot splendor and purity. We, we can't, we, we, we just, if, if, if we find hell to be unjust, then we haven't reckoned with those categories appropriately. And, you know, people's minds will often, they'll gravitate towards particularly heinous actors in history, you know, they'll, they'll find the Stalins or the Hitlers or the Pol Pots of history and say, well, surely he slaughtered all these innocent people. That kind of punishment awaits him, and that is a just thing. So it's, can we take that reckoning then? Can we take that categorization and understanding 
and extrapolate so that 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 umbrage that you that you an objection that you sense when you think of the heinous wickedness of these evil man slaughtering dictators and and take it down and spread out and extrapolate it more broadly to all kinds of sin by all kinds of sinners all throughout the world and realize that that sense of offense that you feel when you think of the 250 million dead peasants out of Soviet Russia that is just a smidgen of the offense that your holy creator feels about all sin everywhere and maybe just maybe you can kind of get your head around that a little bit better you know um one of the things that that comes to my mind uh is you know a couple of uh, maybe a decade or more ago at this point uh a big name in the evangelical world was francis chan and I actually thought that he was about to write a, a helpful book uh, entitled Erasing Hell because, uh, of course, the judgment of God, especially for eternity, uh, is not often preached in in uh, influential circles. Um, we, we try to refrain from, you know, a lot of talk of, of sin, uh, hell, the punishment of God, things like this, uh, you know, and and so. Francis Chan was was writing a book and his whole goal was that we need to, you know, we need the people of God to be aware of the punishment of God. And we need uh, we need to to know that there is a a punishment that is to come. Uh, but then, you know, right at the end of the book, uh, I was reading it and I was like, you know what? I have quibbles here and there. Um, I, I don't agree with everything. Uh, but it's overall, it's going to be okay. And then right at the end of the book, he's like, but you know, I'm not really convinced that, that hell, uh, is going to be forever. And he ends up taking an annihilationist view. And I mean, you just throw, you throw it out then, right? I mean, it's a, a total misunderstanding of who God is, what sin is and what our sin, uh, deserves. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, pumping and the Westminster uh, divines knew this, the way that they even organized the catechisms pumping in at first, this, this huge view of God, then helping us realize how, you know, just how deep our sin flows within us and how vile and wicked it is to understanding. If I know if I know a, if I know a thrice holy God, a God who is holy, 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 and if I know my sin and sinfulness, it only makes sense for me to deserve an infinite, eternal hell away from you know His relief or His presence. I was going to say I know we've already moved on to uh, punishments in the life to come, but speaking of punishments here in this life, y'all, Derek Bright has just joined us. Welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, I didn't get the memo that y'all are actually doing the podcast today. And uh, I just was just checking the link and I thought, well, maybe, maybe there's some friends on there. And uh, here you are recording. And I, I'm just so upset that I wasn't invited. Oh, oh no. You've already been exposed thanks to Spin and Weber at the beginning <laughs> yes. of this episode. We've told on you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad that, uh, glad that I was able to jump on. Hey, we're glad to have you here. And in all seriousness, of course, we we know you were with our friends over at BTS, and BTS is one of the sponsoring organizations for this podcast, so we're thankful for them. And even if you had to have divided loyalties for a little bit here this morning, we're glad you're I here. I did. I did. But uh, I would encourage everybody to get, to uh, listen to Ron Bc's podcast, The Westminster Standard, whenever it comes out with myself and our creator talking about what's going on at the prison here in Bibb County. So Very good. Shameless plug. Not shameless. We love you. That's right, Nick. I think you were. I think you're about to follow yeah, up ahead. with what Matt had just said. You know, one of the things that I I would encourage people in our churches to be considering, and just people in general as well, is that a doctrine of hell. Um, I think it puts in right frame a good doctrine of pleasure, of delight. Um, in that all of those things, anything that is a delight to the soul, if we understand hell rightly, um, ought to be understood as only and truly flowing from God to creatures. 
if hell is so bad and Augustine even approached an understanding of hell being the absence of God or distance from God, then all of the pleasures of this life, all of the pleasures of eternity, the delights, the felicities, all of those things that we enjoy as beings and creatures are rightly, uniformly, and only found in Him. That's true whether we're doing uh, or we are enjoying those in righteousness in this life or even unrighteousness, um, with a thankful heart toward Him or a thankless heart toward Him. All of those things that gratify the human heart, soul, and mind in a right way, in a healthy way, all of those things come exclusively from him. And so when we talk about eternity and a heart that's turned against God and any sort of idea of hell, if hell is absolute torment, then it's only where the heart has already run. That doesn't mean that God isn't pouring out punishments or that he's passive in punishments or that hell is somehow just simply the back of God, that it's not the rage and the wrath of God. Those, those are true, but that all those good things, all those delights, if you're to have them in eternity, they can only be had by his mercy. I really appreciate the language of the catechism here. Um, everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission uh, in hellfire forever. So again, I, I'm not delighting over the reality of, of this horror that awaits so many in eternity. But I am grateful for the, the the vivid and biblical portrayal and the phrasing of the Westminster Divines and the way they put it here. Um, grievous torments in soul and body. So speaking of that future resurrection, where all of us will have our souls reunited with our bodies, some to everlasting bliss, others to everlasting torment, soul and body, uh, without intermission, just unceasing and ongoing. But then notice, from the comfortable presence of God, which to me calls to mind this wonderful sermon series, again, on, on a sobering doctrine, but it is a wonderful sermon series. Uh, I commend it to you. It was given years ago uh, by the late Ted Donnelly uh, on the doctrine of hell. And one of the points that he makes, and it seems to be the, uh, there seems to be a parallel point here that the, the divines are making, is that hell is not necessarily a reality away from the presence of God, it's that there's no comfortable presence of God in hell, but God is present everlastingly in his wrath. And that's what the sinner is experiencing in hell. God is ever-present eternally in his wrath, being poured out uh, in justice upon, those, uh, upon the reprobate. Um, so no comfortable presence of God, but a wrathful presence of God experienced for eternity there. Yeah, exper experiencing the presence of God without a mediator. Yeah. That's why it's been said elsewhere um you know it's um it's that what is it rc sproul says the unmitigated wrath of almighty god um yeah it's it's not that we have this well god's not there well god is omnipresent and it is it is god who is there who is um punishing sinners for their wickedness and rebellion and there is no mediator to take that wrath away. So this should exalt the doctrine of hell. And y'all may have already said this, but the doctrine of hell should exalt the grace and majesty and perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the full penalty of sin for the elect. I mean, what a beautiful thing. If you think about all that hell is, um, you know, and the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for us um what a beautiful savior we have what a friend we have in jesus um that's just such a a beautiful thought and it again your doctrine of hell should exalt the lord jesus christ so i know you know matt is your favorite book on hell um rob bell's love wins is that your favorite god would never because of his love punish for eternity a creature or his creation you know there so I joke, but um, that is I heard a, that on K Love the other week. Yeah, well, that so I, I, that that's still a um, an argument that people make, and I apologize if I'm repeating something that's already been said. But 
I've used this illustration before because some people said, well, it doesn't seem fair that God would um, punish a finite creature for an infinite amount of time. And the problem is we're not looking at who the sin has actually offended, right? Um, it, we've not offended a finite creature. I mean, That's we, right. we may have in some sense, but ultimately we've offended a, an infinite uh, being. Um, and uh, I heard a preacher make this illustration and I've, I've used it numerous times that, you know, if I, if I go and I punch one of my brothers, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is me and my brothers are going to just duke it out. And, uh, you know, my dad or whatever might say, all right, guys, you know, you, you know, shake hands. It's over with. Um, but if let's say my brother gets upset and he calls the cops and says, Derek's assaulted me and the cops show up and I punch a cop. Well, now I'm going to jail because I've assaulted a police officer. So then I'm sitting in court and the judge decides that I'm going to get whatever punishment. And I say, well, I don't like that. So I go up and I punch the judge. Well, now the punishment is going to be increased because I've assaulted someone of an even higher level. Well, take that all the way up. If I were to assault a government official, if I were to assault the president, the king of another country, whatever the case is, the punishment is always going to correspond to the one who's been offended. And so when we offend and assault an infinitely holy, timeless, eternal being such as God, then our punishment will correspond to that and will be infinite and eternal. And um, it's a terrifying thought, but you truly um, reap what you sow. And that's um, even in judgment. Yeah. You, you, that's a great illustration, and uh, I'm going to use that oh, to attribute it. I won't steal it. I will. I stole it from I'll David Platt it. like 10, 15 nice. years ago. That's pretty radical of you to have done I know. that. I know. I know. Well, let's so, be radical together and uh, I'll use it. Well, hey, I'll listen, I'm not going together. down for plagiarism, all right? And uh, so I'll tell you that's where I got the illustration from. <laughs> credit where credit is due. He's going down uh, for other reasons, but not plagiarism, not today, not here, folks. I, I I'm going down in flames one way or another, but it's not going to be for that. <laughs> well, Sean did a great job. I think uh, there was that was something I wanted to highlight was the fact that not just our souls, but also our bodies will uh, be subject to the judgment of God. But that is also conversely a proof text to the fact that believers and their bodies will be made perfectly blessed to the full enjoying of God to all eternity. So there's inverse good news. And even as we sort of wrap up here uh, today, I'm reminded, I can't remember who said it, but George Whitfield, that great uh, awakening, that skilled preacher, uh, somebody said that they came to hear Whitfield preach, and he preached on a pretty uncomfortable and unpopular doctrine, this doctrine of hell. But they said, I come to hear him preach because when he preaches on hell, he preaches with tears. And when we talk about this subject, it should weigh heavily upon our hearts. One, because it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The words of that modern hymn that my sin was the reason that Christ needed to come and to drink the dregs of God's wrath and hell, as it were, upon the cross in my place. But that is also the end of all those who are not reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. And pastorally, we're going to have to minister to those who have loved ones that in life did not profess faith in Christ. And we're going to have to help them wade through these feelings of why God did you not save this loved one? Um, and those are real wrestlings. And uh, I've had to deal with that, you know, in, in my ministry. And that's where I think we always just have to keep coming back to our doctrine of God uh, that only if you have a right doctrine of God can you have a right understanding of providence, of homertology, of anthropology. The doctrine of God, if you get that wrong, you're going to get everything else wrong downstream. And so I think Matt did a good job earlier just saying we have to follow, I think, in our catechesis of our children and also in how we minister to 
brothers and sisters in Christ is take them first and foremost to what we know and what is of greatest importance, namely the goodness, the holiness, the justice, and the mercy of God uh, in Christ. So bring them, bring them back to God before we try to weave through this or uh, work through it some other way. Well, guys, this has been a terrific discussion. I know I've been edified by it, even as we've been thinking about some hard things, and I hope that our listeners have been edified by it as well. So we hope that you've enjoyed this time and it's been useful and profitable to you. And uh, this has been a discussion on Westminster Larger Catechism questions 28 and 29, and we'll look forward to having you join us next time when we pick up again with Larger Catechism question number 30. So until then, friends, cheers. God bless. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.